He's the man in the back of the room. Y con la voz de Dios. He's told U.S. presidents where to sit, CEOs where to go, and stars when to shine. But as he likes to point out, Who cares? I care. It's true, she cares. And so does he. He's entertainment and production agency owner and meeting and event master, Anthony Bellotta. She's his Agent 99, and you're about to be Bellottified. Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of Volatified, the one and only pod about events, entertainment, and engagement. I'm Anthony Bellotta, and I'm here as I am every week with the always delicious, always optimistic Alexia Cristina Postalidis. Opa, Alex. Hello, my friend. It's so lovely to see you. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, likewise to you. Thank it's a uh, busy time of the year we're ramping up for the rest of the year and uh wow just have a lot going on huh yeah 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 trying to get stuff done and get ready and trying to i've been really good about trying to organize my personal space so that i can go into the busy season a little calmer and more relaxed because when things good. are chaotic yeah. around me whether it's at work or home i, I don't i don't function well yeah, I hear you 100%. Uh, and I think our guest would agree that um, there's nothing like being organized. It just really clears a mind and helps to forge forward with things that need to be done, right? I mean, yes. organization is the key. It is. It is. It's so important. Okay, before we get started, if you're a new listener, please take this time to like and subscribe. Go ahead. We'll give you a sec. Why, thank you. So um, something came up this week. Uh, Sam in our office sent me a writer uh, that a client had sent to us and uh, asked me to sign off on it. And I, I had to read through the writer, of course. And there were some things on that writer that, oh, kind of hit me the wrong way. And as it turns out, the client came back and said, no, we don't need that writer. Apologies, didn't mean to send it to you. But it did make me think about this clause we called the force majeure clause. And I'd like to center my tipsy today around just that. Let's get tipsy! So let's talk force majeure. Now, in contract law, a force majeure clause speaks to the unforeseeable, extraordinary circumstances that could happen, which would A, prevent the parties to that contract from, from fulfilling their obligations, such as having to cancel an event or shut down operations, and B, how the contract finances will be handled as a result. In the meetings and event industry, the clause has been in existence for, for decades. But since the turn of the century and the impact of 9-11, the mortgage meltdown in 2008, and more recently, the COVID pandemic, force majeure clauses have received a lot more notice and consideration. And for good reason. The force cancellations those circumstances caused made planners more hesitant to sign and pay deposits for future meetings and events and put a lot of small businesses on the hook to return those deposits, forcing some out of business. 
That's because while the term force majeure is widely accepted to mean an unforeseeable circumstance or act of God, the clause itself is anything but boilerplate. And mistake number one is assuming that it is. For an event or meeting planner responsible for contracting myriad services, this point cannot be overstated, especially if you're signing other entities' contracts over and above sending one developed specifically for your business. If you are, rule number one is to read the clause thoroughly and understand under what circumstances the contract states a force majeure clause will go into effect. Not all force majeures are created equally, and while a rail or airline strike might prevent a group from traveling to a locale, it doesn't necessarily prevent the vendors in that locale from providing the services they offer. Rule number two is to understand the financial implications of the clause, because while it might seem fair to suggest that a force majeure occurrence should result in the return of any deposited funds and further non-payment, if those funds have already been expended on behalf of the purchaser, is it really fair to suggest that the payee should just suck it up and take the financial hit? I don't think so. That's why rule number three is to ensure that all of the contracts you sign for a meeting and event have force majeure language that aligns both in the scope of what constitutes a force majeure and how finances will be handled should one occur. If the clauses don't align, do your best to align them, ideally with the oversight of a practicing attorney. And that is my force majeure tipsy. Bravo. So tell, so tell me, what do you think? I, I love it because, you know what? I, I just have to tell you right away because I think this is going to uh, explain how I feel about it. Because you know what Yaya would say. I mean, I know you know what Yaya would say. I sure do. Okay, you could probably say it better than I can, but I'll, I'll spare you. Um, so I don't what, think I could say it better than you can. <laughs> what Yaya would say is, To know what is right put yourself in another's shoes. Now, it, it seems like it's not quite fitting, but she would always follow that up. And I'll tell you why I feel it fits. She would follow it up with a gapimo. Which means my love. Which, the, the fair thing is always right, but the right thing isn't always fair. Meaning, right. When she would see somebody trying to game the system, trying to get away with something on a technicality, sure, maybe legally it is the right thing to do, it's the legal thing to do, but put yourself in the other person's shoes and then ask yourself, how would you want to be treated? If everybody takes a little bit of the hit in a force majeure situation, not all the loss is on one person. It may not be your idea of what is legally right, but it's the right thing to do because in that mm. situation we have to be partners. We have yes. We have to work together. And I and I would actually go further and say that with these clauses and and force majeure is one clause in a contract, just one that should align. Ideally, they should all align. But the devil is in the details. 
always. And it's about reading those clauses. Hey, I'm not a lawyer. I don't pretend to be a lawyer. I'm a business owner who has had to teach himself about these clauses and read them through and scratch my head when I don't understand what they mean and look up the definitions because it impacts my business and my my financial the financial health of my business right one tiny little mistake like not aligning a clause like that could really be the end of a small business mm-hmm. so you really really have to be careful the devil truly is in the details now there's where yaya would argue with her cuz she would say god is in the details but you know that's a mind but can i just i i just want to say something and i know then we want to get on to our incredible guest today if people could follow, I'm, I'm going to do a little bragging on Mr. Bellotta right now, because one of the things that you are is your fairness is exemplary. I have seen you take care of people in situations where really legally you didn't have to do it at all, but you just knew it was the right thing to do. It was the right way to treat somebody. And that may have been a little bit of a hit for you, but you do it anyway, because What's fair is always right, but what's right isn't always fair. And you make it fair and you make it right. So I think if, you know, everybody followed your footsteps in this, businesses as well as the world would be better off. Thank you. Well, I can't, I I, I thank you, but I can't say that I I don't get blessed for, uh, for, for responding in that way because this is our 30th year in business. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that, Part of the longevity is is treating people fairly and taking the hit when necessary, just to make sure that everybody that everything is copacetic and everybody moves away from whatever circumstance happened, feeling like they were treated fairly. Because at the end of the day, that will bring somebody back to Balada to do business again with us, rather than just saying, oh, well, you know, sorry, the hit is yours. And uh, that's just the way it is. That person will never come back. Right. So, uh, so thank you for that. And I have to say that it's one of the things that I feel like I share with our guest today. Um, uh, Her sense of morality and ethics is on point. And I love that so much about her. Uh, So let's bring her on and let's introduce her to the world. Let's do that. So I have to say one of my favorite words in the English language is eclectic. And I think that that perfectly describes our guest today. Holding a BS degree in zoology from Oswego State University, she was a professional animal trainer for many years, working with and training animals from sea lions to porcupines and everything in between. She's a certified special event professional She worked as events manager for the USS Midway Museum, one of my favorite venues, as a program manager and instructor at SDSU, developing curriculum and course materials for the professional certificate in meetings and event planning program, and combining her animal and event planning and managing expertise, she worked for Friends of Vista Hill, where she planned and coordinated annual fundraising events as well as establishing a new animal interaction program for severely developmentally disabled individuals. I get chills over that. The director of the Institute of Meeting and Events for the L. Robert Payne School of 
Hospitality and Tourism Management at San Diego State University. Please welcome the one, the only, Lisa DeFino. Thank you, Alex and, and Anthony. Happy to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you. Uh, we have a long history together, known each other for decades. And uh, I mean, I could probably answer these 10 quick questions for you, but I won't because <laughs> the whole point is to uh, have our audience get to know you a little better. So that's how we're going to start off. And I know you're up for it because you're always up for a challenge. Uh, 10 quick questions. 10 quick questions. 10 quick questions. Yay! First answer that comes to your mind, two minutes on the clock. Alex will watch the clock. Are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. All right, question number one. What was your first job in the hospitality industry, position and place of employment? Uh, I was a waitress at a restaurant in New York. What beverage do you keep in your Stanley Cup? Red wine. Oh, good for you. I love you. What? <laughs> what what color what color do you wear when you want to feel powerful? Green. Mm. Peach fuzz <laughs> is Pantone's 2024 color of the year, peach fuzz. What comes to mind when I say peach fuzz? A peach. <laughs> and it's fuzz. It's fuzz. <laughs> What's one phrase you constantly hear yourself repeating in the classroom? Please read the directions. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Funny and sad at the same time. All right. Charisma, uniqueness, nerve, or talent? Charisma, uniqueness, nerve, or talent. Which of these has served you most in your career? Grit. Grit. Wasn't part of I guess wasn't you could even say I know. Nerve? I guess you could say perseverance. Is that was that one of your choices? No, it was charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. But I would say grit is nerve. I would agree. Grit is nerve, but it's perseverance. I don't think talent, quite frankly, has a lot to do with it. And there's a lot of studies out right now. Um, you can have, you know, exemplary SAT scores and great GPAs, but you can't survive the long-term goals of getting. To your career because you don't have grit it's it's and i see it i see it all the time yeah yeah i bet you do especially in the classroom i bet that's where it shows up a lot all right number seven what is the last thing you got in trouble for doing or saying oh that's an everyday occurrence with me anthony <laughs> um so it should be easy for you to remember <laughs> yes yesterday uh kind of telling my boss off <laughs> yeah, he took it well. <laughs> I, I know your boss, and I have a feeling he deserved it. Yeah, he did. <laughs> I did get in a wee bit of trouble, though. Ah, <laughs> uh, who cares about that little wee bit of trouble, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> did it right, need to be said? It did need of, to be said. Of course. Okay. It needed. And you know my boss, and you know me, and you know I, I, it needed to be said. It probably needed to be said five times. Yes, exactly. That's what I would say. Yeah. Uh, what is harder to train, a black bear or a new client? A new client, <laughs> by far. By far. You're walking towards the stage to receive your Lifetime Achievement Award. What song is the band playing? 
We are the champions. Yay. And finally, who is the most famous person whose house you visited? Bill McDermott, my cousin, president and CEO of SAP Industries and now ServiceNow. Oh, who is that? Bill McDermott? McDermott. Oh, wow. Actually, it was his it was his his brother's house, but in yes, he's my he's my second cousin and he's pretty famous. Is that your final answer? Um, well, <laughs> I don't know if I've been, oh, Anthony Bellata's house? No, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. I, I thought for sure I would bring you to the answer that I have in my mind, which is Lee Iacocca. Oh my gosh, of course, yes, of course. You're absolutely right, yes, yes. So uh, long story short, uh, Lisa, when she was working on the Midway, was responsible for the gala and for the ceremonies that would uh, transpire during the gala. And at one of these uh, galas, we honored Lee Iacocca. And Lisa brought me along uh, as a script writer to go to his house. He wasn't there. No, he wasn't. His assistant was. His assistant was there and we met with her at his house and did an interview and scoped out the house and got some pictures that we were able to use in a video that we did of him. And I got to say, that was a really fun day for me. It was a and fun day and it was a fun putting that whole event and program together. It was very exciting. And, you know, I have to say that Lee Iacocca is one of my idols because that guy has grit and nerve and, you know, yeah. he, he was very poignant in everything that he wanted to do and he accomplished everything he wanted to do. And that's grit, you know, and I don't see a lot of people doing that these days. But I have no. to say expiring minds here want to know, did you go through his sock drawer or medicine cabinet? Oh, uh, we were very, res very respectful. <laughs> So yes, we did. You did. No, 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 no. He had several bars in his house where he had doers on Ooh. on on tap. On tap. I, I don't remember that. I yes. don't remember that. Yes, doers on tap. Not a not a keg of beer. Doer scotch. No. On tap. On tap. And he he lived in Bel Air at the time, which was you know he's he's the only house I've ever been to in Bel Air was you know his house. Remarkable. It was. I, st I still rem remember driving up in your truck. I think it was a new truck at the time. Yes. It was really fun, really fun. And that was one of three events that we did on the Midway together. Uh, we also uh, did an event with Jack from Jack in the Box, as I yes. remember, and Frank Sinatra Jr. And yes. the first time we did that event, we had uh, vet veterans of World War II on stage and Sam Donaldson. Do you remember what happened at that event? I sure do remember. Uh, for all of you budding event planners out there, this was crazy because, you know, it never rains in San Diego ever, 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 except for this night, the night of our setup, right? And we were supposed to set up on the flight deck for this tremendous event. And at the last minute, Lisa had to make the decision to pull it inside into the hangar bay and change all of the logistics of the event. 
Do you want to share a little bit about that from your point of view? Um, yeah. So up on the flight deck, we already had the, the stage was going up. The, all the rentals were up there. The generators were up there. All the power for the entertainment and the programming. And um, basically, it was Friday morning. And I went to my department head and said, we can't have this event up there. It's, you know, and it was pretty funny because they kept saying, well, what if we put umbrellas out? Umbrellas. <laughs> over the tables. Okay. These typically, obviously not event planners, right? Right. Well, how, let's just put up a tent. Okay. We have 36 hours till the event happens. That It, it can't happen. Um, so we, I had, to, I had to kind of go through the scenarios and finally I said, okay. And then we had 36 hours to flip everything that was up, up top, down below, reconfigure the stage, reconfigure all the rentals, Reconfigure the footprint was completely different than up top. Yes. And I remember crawling all over the ship, dropping the cables from the generators up top down below to so that we'd have the power, you know, enough power that we needed for the entertainment and the programming. And then the fire marshal had to come back and relook at that. And then, as you know, you were called to come down because you had to kind of rethink the whole script and the pattern and the right. fireworks. And it was, it was, it was a rough 36 hours. It was rough. I, I do remember that it was just pandemonium trying to get it all together at the last minute and still have a program that would flow seamlessly. Because that was the key is, you know, we we couldn't screw this up. Too many important people in the audience. Exactly. Wow. But you know what, Anthony, you were fabulous. You figured out the whole program. We worked together on the footprint. I, you know, I, I don't think the attendees that came knew any different. Yeah, it, I agree. It, it was a little crowded, more crowded than I would have liked in the hangar bay, but it it was beautiful and it worked. Mm. And it, the program was awesome. And, you know, the veterans were honored in a, in a tremendous way. And um, I just think it was a really powerful program. Thank you. It was, well, it takes, you know, it takes a good partner to make things happen and somebody who's clear headed and can think on their feet and can make these decisions in light of all of the, you know, what's coming at you and, and people now, you know, are worried, right. And you have to just sort of forge ahead and tell them all, Oh, it's going to work. Don't worry. We've got it. It's going to work. It was a lot of handholding as well. And I recall at the time, you know, the ship has undergone improvements since it docked. Uh, but at the time, it was still kind of a slow moving operation. You know, there were no elevators that brought people from one deck to another. There was one elevator that brought all of the equipment onto the ship. And that required a forklift to get it onto the ship elevator first. Uh, it wasn't easy to make this change. And sometimes, depending on the tide, we actually had to have a crane because if it was high tide, then the then the forklift wasn't high enough to get the containers onto the elevator to then be transferred either into the hangar bay or up top. Now everything was up top, so now I had to come down, and it was essentially a very old elevator with very weak mechanics, and it was about I want to say it was like three or four minutes it took to get up and two minutes to get down. So you had to always kind of figure in that logistics of the timing going up and down into the unloading and setup because it was an arduous process. It was not fast. 
Yeah. And because of the mechanics, you didn't really want it going up and down constantly. You really wanted everything to be scheduled. So it was there and you bring it up. You know, you don't want to repeat that few repetitions as possible. Well, and think about the, the food and beverage, as you know, all the canopies were set up on the flight deck for all the catering staff to be able to prepare all the food and serve it to what did we have? 300 guests? Oh, and more than that, I think, didn't was we? Was it four, four, five hundred? Four or five hundred, I think. Wow. And I've done so many galas, I can't keep the number straight. But <laughs> so we had to then change all of their stations to where they were going to be serving food. And that was problematic as well, because there's not as much room in the hangar bay as there is right. on the flight deck. So it was, yeah, it was quite the struggle. Right. And you want that stuff to disappear, quite frankly, when you're throwing a gala. You don't want people to see the kitchen. You know, you don't want that. So it was even even that made it more difficult. So, um, and all the things too that just go right down to even having to change all the dressing rooms, things people don't think about, you know, all of that becomes a logistical nightmare. Yes, it was definitely, I think we earned our our stars and stripes on that one. Uh, It was, it, it ended up being, tremendous i think we were so happy at the end of that i remember feeling like oh we got through we dodged this bullet we made it happen everyone was happy uh but it's not something you want to do every weekend for sure no No. (laughs) (laughs) well that no we moved the event from that that we it was memorial weekend right and after that event it ended up being moved to august because we were pretty guaranteed that we were going to have nice weather and be able to do it on the flight deck right Right. And, you know, now on that flight deck, you can't even do what we did uh, back then, uh, because during COVID, the fire marshal came onto the ship and uh, put more restrictions in place. So you can't use trussing that's more than 10 feet high on that flight deck anymore. A lot, a lot of changes have happened uh that have made it more difficult to use that chip and i really put i applaud that that team that's out there now because mm-hmm. it's not easy and they're always busy they're always yeah. busy yeah so lisa our our force majeure tipsy today you have any thoughts about that wow yeah and i i agree with you that you know 20 years ago everybody just looked it over like oh no big deal you know and now you know, in recent history and uh, various events that have taken place over the world, um, it's now really critical. Um, and, and, and just risk in general um, is something yeah. that event planners have to scrutinize very carefully. Um, I, I agree with you. I love your position on, you know, making it fair, uh, not always what it's right, but doing what's fair. However, I will tell you that I believe that there are very few people like you in the world, Anthony, that are 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 acting like that, and it's a shame. And and I, I what I feel is out there is there's just such a squeeze on businesses overall in every direction that we go in. Um, you know, from workers' comp to general insurance to liability insurance to um, taxes. It, it's just. Um, you know, in, in, in enforcing um, employers to now not have any access to independent contractors that right. have to be employers, which means now you need to have cover them in benefits and so forth, that it's hard for companies to, to act, it, this is going to sound weird, but to act ethical in a right way, because they're, they're trying to stay alive. And sometimes 
you know, that means, Hey, you signed that and that's done. And I agree that's wrong, but I, I just, I kind of feel like it's the world we live in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't disagree with you. I, it feels like as a small business, you are, you know, we are being uh, strapped in very, very many ways. And uh, it, it's not easy. It's, it's just not easy. And I can understand how people feel like they're just trying to do the best they can. And then something comes from left field that they didn't plan on, they didn't cause, wasn't their fault. And, you know, they don't want to be dinged. You know, I get it. Uh, unfortunately, though, you know, you have to make a choice, right? Well, and I also kind of, I can understand it from, so for instance, you know, I just recently signed a couple of catering contracts for some events that we're going to be doing and we're in it, they're two weeks away. And, um, you know, we're having this conversation because we're struggling with attendance on one of them. And I'm like, well, we're going to lose our deposit. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because you're two weeks out and you, you know, these people it's, they've hold, they've held the room. They haven't rented it out. They're preparing for staff and food and, you know, they may not have bought the pastries or the steak, whatever it is, but they are gearing up for it. And I get it. Yeah. 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 It's lost business and revenue to them too. Right. Yeah. But I think that's where you can do the alignment. And I know in catering contracts, often I've been able to negotiate the loss, you know, and the attrition based on, you know, the time, how, how close you are to the date of the event. And, you know, if you're a week out, you're, you haven't purchased the fresh food, you know, you're not purchasing salad a week out. So you can look at, you know, lost, you know, lost profit versus overall lost revenue, you know, like look at that. And um, some people are willing to negotiate and some people aren't. So what is the issue that you're having with these events you're throwing? It's uh, people are just slow to uh, RSVP and get on board. You know, ever since COVID, Anthony, what we're experiencing, and I experienced this across the board with professionals that have been in their industry or in their jobs for decades to the students coming on campus, they don't want to go out. You know, they want to stay behind their screens like we are today. Right. Um, you know, they want to stay behind their screens. They want to stay in their homes. They want to, um, you know, only have to go out and interact and do those things for client sites or what have you. But these, these events that we try to put on to engage the community to come, you know, so that we can expose San Diego State and our students, we're just not seeing, a, a, there's no enthusiasm there. And we haven't done one of these executive in residence in probably since 2018. So it's been a while too. So we've lost that momentum in terms mm. of getting people to come to a dinner um, with our, our executive and to a breakfast the following morning. And um, so I just, and I see this across the board. It was very, very tough to the last past two years in getting students to engage. Um, They, you know, COVID really took a toll on them. It took a toll on them. I mean, I saw it with my own daughter, but I really see it with a lot of the young people that I work with on San Diego State. And they kind of lost their perspective on what it takes, particularly in hospitality, to actually work like they want to you know they want to plan Coachella from their couch in Ocean Beach so that they can go out surfing and you know that's just not reality not at all they don't have that reality perspective because they have been disengaged for so long 
And um, so it's been a, been a struggle. It's been one of my important tasks to try and get the students sort of back on track and, and back engaged. And um, I was definitely seeing some changes happening now, but back to your question regarding the event, um, there's the adult side of that, that yeah, they just rather stay in their office or stay at home and do their work and not really go out and, and socialize and, you know, network, which of course is our, our industry is all about that. Right. Yeah. I, I find that interesting too, because uh, on a whole uh, we're seeing our, our clients, we're seeing their attendance uptick this year, uh, especially in the association realm more people are going to the conferences in 24 than they did in 23. And it's just slowly, slowly coming back. So I'm actually surprised to hear you say this, that um, you know, you're still having trouble getting people out the door and students are still reticent to, you know, to get out. I remember you told me when you went back to teaching, cause you took a little hiatus, right? Yes. You went back and you, uh, you, uh, inherited a class that was already in play. And if I'm wrong, correct me, but I think you said to me, they don't want to plan events. You, you had in the curriculum that there would be some event planning throughout the year and you got pushback. It was actually, um, it wasn't a class. It was a student, so, student organization and they were a, event planning student association and they only wanted to plan events on campus. So they only wanted to do like an ice cream social or a bingo night on campus on, we have a patio off of our office. Um, and they didn't want to like plan an event to, for the whole school, like do a job fair, or they didn't want to plan an event where we could do showcasing, or they didn't want to plan an event where we went to LA and toured various venues that recently has changed. In right. fact, they are going to LA and they went to New York. So it, it has changed, but it was, um, it was, it's, it's still a struggle to some degree. Um, wow. What yeah. about the, what about the, the, uh, the level of students that you're, you're dealing with now? It, are they, are they more savvy and enlightened today than they were 10 years ago or, or not? No, opposite. 10 years ago, I would have seen a lot more savvy students than I do now. That's not to say that there aren't savvy students with, I have, I can name about not on this podcast, but I mean, I know five or six students that, uh, in fact, I took them to Dallas the first week of Dallas to IAEE and they were phenomenal and they were great, great kids, really engaged, um, went to sessions, learned a lot. You know, there definitely are pockets of them. But then just in general, I just don't see that uh, savviness, that grit, that want to, they don't want to work hard. They want to have everything sort of spoon fed to them. Oh, and Yeah. Again, not all of them. I don't want to paint a broad brush there, but, but I, but if you look back in the last four years during COVID, that's exactly what happened, right? They, they were, they were catered to. And we had to be empathetic to their situation and professors had to go do everything online. We had to change um, expectations in terms of there was no group projects. And of course, 
as you know, in hospitality, particularly when you're in the technical side of thing, it's all about group work. Yes. All of that went away. So they didn't have the skills, you know, based in high school or coming into school of being able to work with people and problem solve. And they didn't, they don't really need to time manage because there was so much allowability and flexibility in terms of getting assignments in and they were online and you could turn it in at 12 midnight. And if you were right. late, you just got dinged a few points. I mean, can you imagine if you have a client that's asking you for a proposal and gives you a deadline and you say, well, you know what? I, I just, I just couldn't get it done. So I'll give it to you next week. Right. You may as and, well just not do it to be honest with you because. Right. Exactly. Cause especially if you're, and as you know, you're, you, of course that client's got competing bids, Right. Right. So they, but that, that whole sense of understanding that was, was really lost by COVID. And it's been, um, like I said, it's been, it's almost like retraining them, but they're adults. So it's hard, Mm. but it's coming around. Good, good. Because urgency is what this, what this industry is all about. We're deadline driven. And if you can't meet the deadline of an RFP, how in the world are you going to meet the deadline of an event? You know, it's just, it's just that simple right? You have to be deadline driven. It doesn't feel good necessarily, <laughs> but it's just the way we operate, right? I mean, the, the event was Tuesday, not next Tuesday. Correct. You got to make it happen. And the, the, you know, doing general planning timelines and staying on task on that critical path, there's sort of that lost concept of why, you know what I mean? Like, I don't understand why I have to get um, a couple of catering bids for an event that's happening in six months today. Like they just kind of want to cram it all in to the last week or so of things, you know, and, and understanding how you, well, you need that bid so you can make decisions. You can go to your stakeholders and it fits in your budget. And if you need to change things in your budget, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to be able to go in your budget and maybe change your decor idea or your entertainment idea or scale something back because your stakeholder does want filet mignon and lobster, and that's the top of the price. And that sort of juggle and multitasking and, you know, in your budget, robbing Peter to pay Paul or, you know, um, right. that concept is just not there right now. And I don't know. It doesn't if- allow for procrastination. No. Exactly. Exactly. And um, us, those of us have been and lived in the industry and, and, you know, we know that. And part of it's an experience for sure. But the other part I think is really being coddled and, and hidden in COVID. I don't even think that many of them had the opportunity to actually do budgets when they were in high school for themselves, or, you know, they didn't exercise any of those time management skills and budget skills, you know, like my kids would have an allowance or, you know, that kind of thing. I I don't even know that, or had jobs, right. Or had jobs, right where they had to manage their money, you know, right. so it's been a, it, gosh, I just, I pray that it never happens again. Um, because the devastation that I've seen the mental health of these kids, it, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard to watch them. It's hard to see their social ineptness. Um, and it's some of that's really hard to turn around. And, and if you're in hospitality, I mean, you, you, you gotta be social. 
You have to, uh, and you have to uh, have grit, like you said earlier, and you have to not be afraid to go out and meet people and make introductions and take initiative and just get out there. Because those of us who are in hiring mode or have the, uh, have the, uh, the power to hire, that's where we want to see you. And that's how we want to see you. We want to see you taking initiative and, you know, stepping up to the plate because that, and that signals to us that you're going to be there for the long haul. You know, you exactly. really want this. Well, and that they're committed to providing you what you need to be successful as an intern or a part-time employee or whatever. It's not just about, you know, collecting a paycheck and sitting behind a desk and you, they're actively loyal to wanting to pursue your success, support your success. Yes. And, you know, and that is really important. Um, one of the other things that we're coming across is just um, their sensitivity to the environments that they're in is really, really sensitive. Um, you know, there's, there's so much pressure on companies and the environments for diversity, which we're all very, very supportive of, but in the environment, sometimes, as you know, you can't control other people, right? So you right. might be in an environment where there's a clientele that's not as accommodating or not as nice, right? There's still issues out there. They're always going to be. Yes. And um, we're finding that the students are very taken back by that and very offended. And and as they should be in some situations, however, you and I both know, and maybe it's just because I grew up in New York, you just got to sometimes toughen it up too. You know, that, yeah. what that person says or does or acts towards you is irrelevant. They're not very important. Just get through it. Right. I'm not saying really bad critical things. I mean, you of know, of course, but, but you have to, you have, you can't fight every battle. Correct. You have to weigh the ones that are the most important. Right. Correct. You know, I'm going to say that my daughter actually taught me something very, very important because I'm an extremely social person. COVID did do something to me. And she would see me sometimes start to retreat a little and she would say, mom, go easy on yourself. Your social battery is low. You need to recharge and then you'll come back. And I went, okay, thank you for that. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it was, she works in hospitality and she works in a restaurant and it is, she, she's constantly having to fight the battles. Like, all right, at what point do I just brush it off mm -hmm. and know they're rude? And at what point do I stand up and say enough? And it's it's a very important skill to learn. It really right. is. And, it you, really and, is. and part of that is really having to ask yourself, stopping in the moment, taking a deep breath. Mm -hmm. There we go with that breath again. And asking yeah. yourself, what is it you really want to achieve out of this circumstance? What is it you want to walk away with? If you want to lose a client, if you want to lose a job, if you if you want to lose a friend, then you know you'll have an argument and 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 rebuff what's being said to you. But if you want to keep that job or that client, you might just have to, as Lisa said earlier, suck it up and just go with what I call character building and, you know, learn from it and move on because not everything is an argument and not everything is going to end well. Right. Well, the other it. thing I want to add to this too, is it's learning to take a step back yet breathe, but also 
try to have some understanding and compassion for the other yes. person's yes. situation. Because when you are met, I probably can't say this word because we're recording, um, but with certain behavior, it's one of my favorite words, but I won't say it. With certain behavior, it's not always about you. In fact, probably more times than not. Now, that exactly. doesn't say that you act like a doormat and allow people to be disrespectful to you. Not at all. But also, really, what's their intent? Are they trying to disrespect you? Are they trying? Just take a breath. Try to have some compassion. You don't know that maybe, you know, their cousin just passed away or they had to put their dog down that morning or they're going through whatever, personal crisis. And, you know, if, if a person continues to abuse and mistreat, that's a different story. If it's a one-off, take a breath. Right. Okay. Right. Diffuse should be the, uh, the goal always and not to get so entrenched in it, but to diffuse it and, and move on. Uh, and that's not easy for us because we do take things personally. This new class is very sensitive. I'm sure they're taking things personally when when you you have to just sort of let it go and move on. And and you and you can't always rely on the on the idea that oh the person who wronged you you know they'll get their comeuppance. You just have to move on and be right. happy with who you are. Exactly. And take some responsibility for whatever it is you did to play into that however small it might be understand what you did understand your actions and move on you know and 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 not exacerbate it because that that leads to no good for exactly. anybody and we're in a we're we we work in an in an industry as lisa said earlier we're all about teams we, we cannot work in silos in this industry. You just simply cannot, even if you're an office of one. And so uh, it's important that you know how to get along with people. And and sometimes the toughest people are, are the ones that teach you the best lessons at the end of the day or might have the most opportunity to give you. Mm-hmm. So tell me about um, the classroom. And in your opinion, I'd like to ask, what, what is not being taught to today's up-and-coming meeting and event planners that really needs to be? Financial management is a big piece of it. And in fact, I am one of my tasks of, as the working for the Institute for Meeting and Events um, is to reorganize the curriculum so I'm kind of redoing the, the meeting and event emphasis curriculum right now and looking at ways to either create an entire class on that or infuse it into other classes. So they need more and, and Excel in, in general. Um, you know, I, uh -huh. still, I, I still prefer Excel over Google Sheets or I, I, I don't, I'm not, and I'm probably just old school, but I'm not very proficient in the project management software that's out there. I know there's a lot out there, Basecamp, Monday, Tuesday, whatever. Um, I'm still just a hardcore Excel person. And I still know of a lot of planners and uh, a lot of clients that rely on Excel to manage a lot of things from production timelines to budgets to critical paths, you know, creating Gantt charts and so forth. So I think that that piece is there. I think um, 
production in general, we're trying to get a little bit more because everything is sort of theory in the classroom, right? Right, right. Um, and we push them to do as much hands-on as we can, but it's still, I still think there's pieces to the production part, like the logistics and, um, you know, understanding how, how numbers play in, in terms of layouts and CADs. For instance, back to the conversation we had earlier about the Midway, if I didn't have a CAD program for the, for the flight deck and the, and the, um, hangar bay, I would have never been able to switch all that equipment from the flight deck to the hangar bay. Right. Because right. I had to fit it all in there and I had to fit in the space to scale. So I think things like that, that they are missing. And I'll tell you, I think the big thing you started it earlier at, with the force majeure is understanding risk and how to have risk management planning in your plan. Wow. And what kind of risks would you say we should be planning for? I mean, well, there's so many. There, Yeah. There's, this is going to sound like a downer thing, but this comes from a man who I listened to at PCMA um, who basically said, it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when there's right. going to be either an active shooter or terrorist attack on a convention. Right. Right. And, That's I mean, a sad thought, but right. And I, I have to say to that point, I still work with clients who don't want to have a VO in a general session tell people how to exit the theater or exit the ballroom in case of one of those emergencies and just don't want to bring it up as though it just doesn't even exist. And it's maddening. It's yeah. maddening because think, what is, what is wrong with preparing people? Well, I think that people are, and I, and I see this even on like social media and even in with conversations with students, um, they, they do shy away from it. They don't want to have that conversation. I was talking about safe safety and, um, in my, in my introduction to meeting and events class, we, there's a chapter on safety. And I brought up the fact that you have to be even knowledgeable about, about world events, because when there's conflict in a part of the world, it can come into your space yes but especially if your constituents or are part of that demographic and i right. happen to bring up i said the middle east right, right. as an example it's all i said and there was a student who got very upset and felt offended um and i don't want to go into too much more on this podcast but i see circumstances like that all the time and I see it from adults. I see it from the kids. You, you see it in your clients. Um, they, they would, per, per, it, we, you know what? We've been very lucky in America. And even though we had 9-11 and other terrorist attacks, we are still not waking up to the fact that there's a lot more grief going on in the world and we're unaffected by it, but that doesn't mean we will be forever. And we certainly should be preparing for it. Right. It just doesn't make any sense not to. Why would you want not want to keep your constituents safe? Because you don't want to, you're, 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 you're just, you don't want to scare them. Right. But I agree. It's maddening. Uh, it's, I don't understand it. You know, I think it's going to get to the point when we can't get, for example, liability insurance, unless we have plans in place that we can show to our insurers 
letting them know we're taking every possible precaution in advance. I think that's when people will start realizing, oh, we have to communicate these plans and we have to have them and everybody has to know what what needs to happen should something happen. That is not far off, Anthony. I don't I don't think it is either. Risk Insurance Management Society is coming to San Diego in May, 10,000 attendees. And I know for a fact that those conversations are already being had. Um, and and it's necessary, you know? It's just like, I mean, in California, it, people can't get fire insurance, you know? Right. I mean, that's a whole different story. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's there has to be pressure put on the industry to for the industry to make the change that's necessary unfortunately yeah well it's not it's definitely not getting any easier out there that's for sure it's and it's 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 not for the weak hearted this uh-uh. this industry because no. you you really do take on a lot of of risk when you throw these events um what about some of the challenges the newcomers in the field are facing today what are some of those challenges that you're seeing pop up you mean newcomers as in um new people entering the field as event planners and yes well from i think from and i kind of only know this from recent graduates or alumni right that you know have been in the field for a couple of years um there seems to be a lot of turnover uh-huh. And uh-huh. and again, depends on the industry. As we know, there can be a lot of turnover in the DMC world. It's a very hard job. It's very stressful. Um, you know, it and talk about grit upside down and backwards and forwards. Um, so they're experiencing a lot of turnover, and and they're sometimes it's because they're chasing the dollar. Right? They don't want they don't want to stay in this job that's sixteen dollars an hour because they can get one for twenty two dollars an hour. And I find that kind of distressing to some degree because it shouldn't be a, it should be, you should be doing what you're passionate about, not necessarily how much money it's paying you. And then they get into those jobs that are paying higher, but they're not as happy with what they're doing. And so I think what I'm seeing is that that the younger alumni, the older alumni are doing great, but the younger alumni, like the last three to five years, again, remember they're coming off of kind of COVID too, are having a hard time finding their niche what's really important to them. Ah, that's interesting. In, in terms of, of where they want to uh, focus on, where they want to put their focus, what what part of the industry they might want to be in, those kinds of decisions, those kinds of things? Yes, they, they're not quite clear on where they want to go. And um, this is going to sound horrible, but they're kind of fickle. You know, like they just, they, they, they kind of have this, okay, well, I went and did that, but I didn't really like it. So I want to go do this and I really don't like it. Um, or I liked it, but I, I really want to try this. Um, there's just a lot of moving around and I just didn't see that 10 years ago. As well, I mean, I think there's something to be said too, where pre COVID younger people had the opportunity for more world experience. Correct. So they were able to find a source of passion earlier. Yeah. yeah. Although I would only challenge that by saying that at least at SDSU and the internship aspect of the education that they uh, rely on and insist on does give the students there an opportunity to try different 
modalities and to, you know, invest in something that they really want. So uh, it's not for lack of opportunity, for sure. No, I would say not at all. I don't, not at all. I, I, I'm not, you know, it's an interesting question. And I'm, I may have to corner a few of my students that are getting ready to graduate and ask them, you know, what they're, I, you know, a few of them are going to, uh, going to continue to work where they're working, where they did their internships, like Sandia Tourism Authority, or, you know, some of the hotel students, obviously, it's pretty easy to find your way into a good career in the hotel and the restaurant industry. It's not so easy in the meeting and event industry. I mean, if you think about our industry is so huge, Mm -hmm. and there's so much varied opportunity, but it's also almost invisible. Right? Right. It's, 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 you don't see it. Like I worked really hard the last year to expose the students to the exhibition industry because I, I just think there's so much opportunity there and they, but they don't know what they don't know. So, right. you know, developed a really great relationship with Freeman Global. They've been on campus a couple of times. They've started an internship program and I took students to IAEE and they had a great time, learned so much on the floor. And, um, and there's so much, in that world, like you can be a graphic artist and go to work for an exhibition company because that's what they need. Right. In fact, even exposing the theater department here in San Diego State to Freeman, because as you know, every theater student's not going to necessarily work in a theater. That's right. Right. So take, but you have great talents that can be applied in the event industry. You're a per, you're a walking perfect example, Anthony. Yes. You know? Yes. So I'm trying to engage my the-, the theater department to get involved and see that there's great opportunity in the exhibition industry for some of those uh, opportunities. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't. Well, what about I- leadership? I, I want to ask you about leadership in, in the bachelor's program at SDSU. Is th- are there courses on leadership? Oh my gosh. We have more courses on leadership than I well, there's at least four classes that every student has to take in leadership. There are very strong leadership classes. And um, and the, the professors that teach them are fabulous and have been teaching for as long as I've been there, over 20 years. Um, I, interestingly enough, I had a conversation with one of them last semester who was expressing similar concern in the last two semesters of students kind of lacking the want to do those things and step into leadership roles and kind of wanting to be that spoon fed thing. And that's not leaders don't spoon feed, you know, that's they lead, you know, Um, and also this lack of understanding what's the difference between, you know, leading and delegating and a leader doesn't do. So we, I have two extremes, right? I have students that I worked with last semester who are the recreation, uh, one of the student orgs, that managed one of the job fairs that we put on in the spring. And I watched the chairman take on almost all the work and tried very hard to explain that it's that wasn't the role. The role was for you to lead. So you have to delegate all these tasks. But he was almost um, apprehensive, felt like he was being um, too pushy. Uh, yeah, yeah, too pushy. Yeah. Right. So... Um, and this semester I'm supervising that same group, different people, different uh, people, but that same group. And there's kind of 
um, the opposite happening. Not, I, I mean, not the opposite extreme so much, but everybody, so many tasks are getting delegated that there's kind of been a confusion as to who's actually doing what, you know? So right. and kids, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is they're really still kids learning. Right. So, um, you know, my job is to sort of sort that out and help them understand the difference between you don't do all of the work you delegate, but you, you oversee that and you, that's right. And I will tell you that they do not want to hold people accountable. Oh, do not want to hold people accountable and do not want to have consequences if those people do not do what they want to do. And that is, um, and you know me, that is a huge pet peeve for me. I just, that is not, that is not how I operate. So I'm constantly when I'm in meetings with them going, okay, so that person's going to do that. And when are they going to complete that task? And the chairman will go, oh, okay, will this date do? And I'm like, yeah, you got to set time. You got to set dates. And what's going to happen if the students that are supposed to be doing this don't do it? What's the consequence? And they're like, well, I don't know. I go, well, maybe they don't get to go on the trip that this job fair is supporting. Right. What? We can't, we can't not let them go on the trip. Sure you can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. You know, you don't fulfill your responsibilities for this. You don't get to go on the trip because the money from that supports the trip that you're going on for free, well, supported by this. If you're not participating, then you don't get the opportunity to go. But they don't want to do that. They don't, want, they to don't want to be the bad guy. They don't want to perceive themselves as being the bad guy. And I think that's the misperception, Anthony, is that they yeah. see it as being a bad guy. And it that's isn't. not a bad guy. That's a good leader. <laughs> that's a good leader who gets people to understand uh, how to get to success in ways that they may not have known beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. So... I've, I've always said, you know, the journey sometimes is hard, but when you carry people along to the end and, and the, and the show in my, in my example, and the show comes off wonderfully without a hitch, everybody feels absolutely fantastic about the work that they did because they've achieved something they didn't know that they could. And it's only at that point when the work becomes, uh, 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 when people realize how important the work was and they embrace the work that they put in. It's only at that point. So you really have to take them all the way to that point of fruition until they're going to realize, wow, and say, thank you for pushing me because I, I didn't think it was possible or I didn't know I could do that. It's only at that point. So it's hard, right? But you've got to get people to understand. And, and I hope that young people start to understand that it's not a reflection of them. It's a reflection of everyone mm -hmm. when they bring a team to success and everybody enjoys the success. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, years and years ago, the Balboa Theater downtown got renovated and it did a grand opening and it was under the contract of a particular person or company that was doing the planning of that. And um, I was, uh, somebody reached out to me that said, uh, things aren't going as well. Can you kind of step in and see what's going on? And I, I stepped in and I could see it was really off track and not on, on point. And we didn't have very much time. So I grabbed one of my students 
And I said, you will come along with me and let's help this. And she, she literally came to my house and we went over production schedules and corrected contracts and looked at lighting and all this other stuff. And she kept saying, oh man, I don't know if I can do this. Oh man, I don't know if I can do this. Oh man, this is chaos. Oh man, this is chaos. And then on site of the, um, of the event, multiple problems, the bathrooms were put by the food stations. We had, it, just because of the previous person's not paying attention. Um, <laughs> Bars were coming out onto the streets, which are not permissible, as you know. Anyways, we fixed all of it, put out all those fires. It ended up being a great event. The mayor was there. There were, you know, there were about, I think, 2,000 people in the street, in the park, in the theater, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the night, she come, my student comes to me. And, and the whole time she's been saying, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. And at the end of the night, and I said, well, how'd it go? She goes, I can't wait to do this again. <laughs> I was like, you got it, girl. You have got the grit and you have got the chaos love. She is now a managing director of one of the biggest DMCs in San Diego. Great. Great. So sometimes when they have to be put through the trauma, you know, to kind of figure out that it's really not that bad and you can get to the end of it, you know? Yeah. And you really don't know until you test yourself and put yourself through that and, you know, see how you do. You can't, to your point earlier, you can't learn how to do an event or throw an event from, you know, behind a computer screen. You really can't learn about how much grit and how much fortitude you have as a person until you put yourself in a position when that's needed. And that's when you learn, right? Mm -hmm. Ah, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yep. You know, before you started teaching, you, as as Alex said, you were an animal trainer. I think you worked for SeaWorld for a while as well. Yes. And uh, and then you you worked for a multitude of, of companies, some that we didn't even mention. Um, do you miss planning so much? You mean with the animals? Do, do you miss, uh, you know, I sort of skipped around. You've worked with animals, then you did a lot of planning, a lot of logistical planning. Do you miss any of that? The logistical planning of big events, some block parties, as I recall, you were oh, involved yeah. in. Yeah, I do. Um I I do I I I do miss getting in the, you know, nitty-gritty of that and being a part of it. On the other hand, I really like teaching the, the students and really kind of um, making sure I at least open their eyes to things, even though I can't give them the experiences I'd like to, I can still expose them to so much more. And I like that. And they, and I like that they kind of go, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know what I didn't know, you know, and, and, and these are students that are coming into hospitality and wanting to be in the meeting and event emphasis but they didn't know what a DMO was, you know, um, or DMC or, you know, cause right. they kind of come in as either wanting to plan Coachella or weddings. Right. That's, it's pretty much the two choices, you know? Right. right. And I mean, I remember years ago when I first started teaching the festival and sporting event class, I had a senior in there and, um, you know, it's a pretty rigorous class and they have to do a mock event, but I make that they, they got to do everything, you know, audiovisual, power, logistics, permits, food and beverage. And it, it's, it's a lot of work. And the student, she was a senior and she graduated. And then she went to dental school because she said, I don't want to do this. Uh -huh. 
too much. And that's okay too. You know what I mean? I I wish I prefer to try to get them to, to recognize that earlier. So they have a chance to switch majors, you know, but it doesn't always happen that way. Um, we're, and we're trying to figure out a way to sort of get some of those students that, that are in other majors that then when they discover hospitality, go, oh my gosh, we want to do this. We were a marketing major, but now we want to do this. And those students that are in the industry here in our program that really are not cut out for it, getting them to recognize that sooner than later. Uh-huh. Well, I think just as a mom who has a kid at SDSU, I think part of that is support at home and not feeling pressured to finish what you started. It's okay to switch majors. My exactly. daughter did it and I support her. I'd rather you try several different things and find a niche and be happy than do something because you started it. And so you got to finish. And what's the purpose in that, right? Exactly. A, a degree that you never really use, uh, you know, four years wasted when you could have, you know, transitioned and found something that is more appropriate for you. That's the time to do it. Exactly. That's the time. You know. This is the time for discovery. Right. Right. So I do want to go back to my SeaWorld question because now I realize what I wanted to ask you. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I, sometimes I have a little, little you know, trouble. Uh, <laughs> so in, in your educated opinion, were the shows performed at SeaWorld, for example, hazardous in any way to the participating animals? Not to the animals, more to the people. More to the people, but nobody cared about the people. No. Oh, well, I mean, you know, I have I was bit in the hand and um, almost lost the nerve in my hand. I was bit in the leg. I had my leg, my, my ribs broken and all by the killer whale. Actually, I did get, I did get bit by a sea lion, sea lion too, but that's another story. Um, as far as the killer whales go and the sea lions, there were, there were incidences with the sea lions and the walruses and it wasn't the animals. It was the people, it was the trainers that were in harm's way, not the animals, the animals were taken care of spectacularly. Now, do I think that they, um, living in a tank is ideal? No. Um, but I will also say to you that what I, my perspective in the years that I participated on that level is that I saw young people and adults learn so much about the animal and being so close to a live killer whale and touching a glass there's an or a dolphin or you know there's an emotional connection there mm-hmm. that as that just is really really strong and those people generally in my experience have gone back out and been advocates of saving the planet and saving mm-hmm. the oceans and saving the world i know i was one of them you know the well, first time i went to florida and saw the killer whales there i was like 14 um, and so I, I don't think it's a horrible institution by any means. Like I watched Blackfish and I, that was so misrepresentation of what actually happened at SeaWorld and unfair because I think it was disgruntled cha- trainers that really kind of came forward on that. But there have been incidences, there have been accidents. I mean, I know of two people that had broken necks while I was there. One that had a had a busted spleen, all from the killer whales, and then of course we we all know about the death of Don Branshaw in right. Texas, right? Um, but I will I will also say that um, in my opinion, some of that was human stupidity, and it wasn't, you know, if killer whales are acting upset 
and swimming around in a tank and they're they're having some social issues and they're extremely social animals then you don't get in the water with them you know and unfortunately under some administrations there or some you know um owners of the park there was this pressure to you know always be in the water in the shows and that that was really wrong because that that put us in arm's way mm-hmm. when when they're clearly upset and a lot of times it was with the with each other because they have a social hierarchy and stuff and so it's kind of stupid to just jump in the water and so you know their accidents could have been avoided um in money in many instances if it wasn't for human error and human misjudgment of taking a chance that we shouldn't have taken mm-hmm. it, it just wasn't necessary and um you know uh the person that was squished by the killer whale happened to be a good friend of mine back in the 1989 or 87. I can't remember. That was just chaos. There was, there were so many whales in the park, in the, in the tank and people were directing the whales to go do a splash there and a splash there. And he was on the back of one of the whales in the middle of the tank. And the whale that he was on happened to be the most submissive and less dominant. So the one whale that they sent to go do, and it, he clearly went in the wrong way. It was also found out later that we didn't even know the whale was blind or at least in one eye oh. and landed on top of John Silic and squished him. Right. You guys probably remember that too. That was a horrific yes. thing. Um, you know, again, that was completely human error and chaos that shouldn't have been allowed to go on. It was acting in, in an inappropriate, unsafe environment, but it wasn't, you know, necessarily the whales being, you know, I don't want to say anthropomorphic, but you know, they weren't out to get him or us, you know, they, it's, they don't think like that. Right. Um, right. But, but there, but there you have it. When something like that happens, uh, everybody's opinion descends uh-huh. and then it just gets really convoluted and people start thinking what they want to think with a uh, irreverent of the facts, you know, exactly. Irre- uh, you know, I uh, I took a class last quarter. It was plant and animal consciousness. And prior to taking that, because I'm a huge animal lover, like no offense to people, but I tend to like animals more than people. Me too. <laughs> Having taken that class, though, where my opinion might have been swayed one way prior, you know, like pro, you know, those people, what are they doing? After taking that class and learning more about animal behavior and killer whales and resident whales and all of that and learning what makes them tick. I, I can see it from both perspectives now, still very much an animal rights activist and animal lover, but I can, I think it's important that everybody have that education before, as you say, descending on an opinion, Anthony, you know, you you can have an opinion, but there has to be some fact in there. Right. Right. Maybe you should just keep it to yourself if there isn't any. Right. Um, before we get to the end of this, I'd like to just quickly ask you about AI uh, as an educator. Do you think it's a viable tool for future planners? I absolutely love it. How are you using it in the classroom or if you are? Well, I'm not personally using it in the classroom right now, but I do know of some instructors that are actually allowing students to use it for research and so forth. Um, I just love it because you can punch something in there and you know, I mean, it just, it's amazing. I mean, even what is it? Um, Dally E or whatever does the graphics and stuff. And um, now is it posing some problems 
for us in terms of plagiarism? Yes. Mm -hmm. And we are taking steps. We do work in a software platform where students generally upload assignments and it already has a plagiarism flag on there. Mm -hmm. So if I get an assignment that's flagged, what I usually do is just copy and paste that and put it into GBT and see if it comes up. Or I can even just put it in Google and it'll show up on, you know, the, here are the sites where some of those, that verbiage was taken uh, and put into that assignment. Um, so it, it is a, it's here and it's not going away. So we have to adapt to it and learn to use it and incorporate it into our curriculum. It's just, we just do have you, to. Do you foresee then it being as part of the curriculum being taught how to use it ethically? Correct, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, again, the big thing is not, you don't plagiarize, you just don't right. cut paste, right? right? You can use it to do research and gain insight, but then put it into your own words. You know, because I, I mean, I know the students and I'm, I'm having conversations with them. And then I get a report that has this language in it that even I don't understand some of the some of the terminology. I know it didn't come from them. Right. I know. Right. They right. It from somewhere because they don't. It's just. They don't, about, yeah. Yeah. But what about for the use of, say, uh, production schedules, timelines? Do you see it moving in that direction? I, I, I would love to use AI to do a production schedule. It's the most tedious right? thing, right? Yes. You know, oh my here's gosh. what I'm going to say about that, though. Here's what I'm going to say about that. Yes, I see that application being very clear, very, very near future. But here's what I'll say about that. In my experience, me doing production schedules, very tedious. You got to think through, you got to write, but honestly, and you work on them for weeks, months, years, mm -hmm. right? Whatever it is. I've yet to ever actually need the production schedule once I'm on site because right. I spent so much time doing it that it's here. Right. And if you have AI do it, right, that, that would be my drawback. Right. I have the same, same uh, opinion about that when it comes to scripting, because when I myself work on a script, I know that script inside and out. I know which session, which speakers, who's coming, who's going. But when I hand it to somebody else and then have to call the show based on what somebody else has done, it's a different world altogether. Mm -hmm. So there is something to be said for entrenching yourself in that in that task and 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 doing it yourself, because then you do walk away with the knowledge and it is up here. Well, and where's the gratification if you're leaving the work to a computer? I mean, in some things it's necessary and it's OK for assistance. But like I was telling Anthony, I had was tasked with writing this 20 page term paper and a friend of mine said, well, you're going to have chat GBT write it for you. I said, well, A, no, because we're working in Canvas, you know, Canva, and that, I'm going to get uh, dinged. dinged for that. But then what's the point? Why am I paying all this money for a class to not do the work and not learn? Where's the gratification in that? Yeah, right. it's stressful, but I did it. Right. There's also the sense that you're giving people that you know what's going on and you're on top of it to Lisa's point about, you know, doing the production schedule. When you could walk on site and have a team on site ask you a question and you can answer that question about what's coming in when or who's doing what, or, there is no greater power than yeah. that, I 
guarantee you people, you impress people, you show them that you're on top of it, you know what that schedule is, and you're going to get it done. And there's nothing like it. And don't you feel more confident? Don't Absolutely. You feel more, um, more relaxed about the show. And, and, and as you know, Murphy's Law, there's never a perfect show and something is always going to go wrong. Right. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's big. Um, sometimes it makes it better. Yeah, sometimes it makes it better. But when you're that entrenched in your program and your production and your layout and your scripting and everything like that, I, there's a sense of calm I have. And it's like, okay, yeah, whatever, bring it on. You know, I I can handle whatever happens because I'm available to do that because right. I know everything else is flowing fine. And you're prepared, right? Prepared. You're prepared, right. That's the key. That is definitely the key. I hate to say it, but we we have to wrap this up. So I'm going to go to our nitty gritty, belotified five. These five questions that we like to ask our guests about, you know, how they handle life, basically. All right. Yeah, you you got this in the bag, I'm sure. All right. <gasps> the belotified five. Lisa, what is your golden rule? Uh, my golden rule is to have empathy, and I've learned this. I've learned to have more over the years through my experiences and my faith and so far. And I just think, you know, similar to what Alex said before is put yourself in the other person's shoes and don't necessarily, and sometimes, you know, you have to think about, am I reacting to this because of that person or because of something else, you know, had having more empathy in the world, just in general. Mm. I, I would have to say that that is also something yeah. that every single planner needs to work on. Because unless you have that quality and unless you're able to empathize with your clients, your attendees, your uh, staff, your crew, then you really don't know what makes them tick and you're really probably missing the ball. And, and the other I mean, you didn't ask me, oh, I'm sorry. You didn't ask no, me, you too, but the other thing is that I just having gratitude to everyone that's working thanking them and telling them what a wonderful job they are. I see that, how that motivates people and how they'll bend over in students as well. And, you know, when you express empathy for them and you express gratitude for the work that they're doing and how hard they're trying, regardless of whether they succeeded or not, or they, you know, there was a problem, but you're just grateful for them helping you and try to follow us. Then they're going to go bend over backwards, yes. mm -hmm. help yes. you, you know, be a success. Yes. And feel good doing it. What's yes. wrong with that? I want to so, add one thing about empathy. I know we got to wrap. I just want to add one thing about empathy. And that is, I wish it was taught. I think a lot of people shy away from that because they think it's a woo-woo word. I, I'm, you know, queen of woo-woo, but it it's not a woo-woo word. It, it's if we taught people not only to have it, but then also, and this is important, how to protect yourself. If you are truly an empath, if you have a very strong empathetic nature, you also have to know how to use it responsibly and keep yourself protected because you can take on other people's stuff too much. Mm -hmm. Yes, true. Very and true. it is a key to leadership, not to you know overdo this point, but it is a key. You can't be a good leader if you can't empathize with your team and understand what they each face on a daily basis and you know their own challenges and take that all in consideration. You can't lead them. Correct. Not successfully. So what is one daily habit you have that you strongly believe contributes to your success? 
I roll out of bed and onto my knees. And I thank God every day for the blessings that he has bestowed upon me. And I'm grateful for everything that I have in my life and the opportunities I have and family, friends. Uh, I And it's become a very important ritual for me. And I read devotionals and it's just really what fuels me for the day. You're going to make me cry. I'm not a crier. You're going to make me cry because, you know, when you get to a certain point in life, shit happens. I said it. And if you can remain grateful for the things that you have, rather than focus on the things that you've lost, no longer have, can't get, you're going to be so much happier and make the people around you happier. Good for you. All right. When no one is listening, what are the things you tell yourself? Don't focus on the bad things, Lisa. Don't worry about <laughs> don't worry about money. Don't worry. Go take a walk outside and look at the birds. <laughs> Good for you. I, maybe we need to do that together every once in a while. Yes, I, I would I, love that's, it. that's my self talk too. Stop worrying. Stop worrying. Yes, constantly. Yeah. Goodness, you know we're we're Italian Catholics, so that's what exactly. we do. <laughs> it's like it's part of the <laughs> DNA. It is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is one change you'd like to see in the world? Ooh. Um, oh my gosh. That's like one change. It, it, ooh, world peace. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, you know what? One change I'd like to see in the world is that if everybody could be kind, yes, not, you don't have to agree. You don't have to accept the other person's position or, lifestyle or religious belief, but be kind. I think that would be such a wonderful thing to have happen. I agree. I agree. And lastly, why? What is your why? What motivates you? What motivates me? So you all right, why do I do the things I do? Is that what you kind yes, of Yes, what is okay. what is your why? What is my why? My horses outside. Um my wanting to go hiking my wanting my why is that i i'm getting ready i want to ride this weekend and i trail ride with my friends you know as much as i can um that's my why i want to i i foster dogs as well for for a local rescue and it inspires me when i you know take on 11 puppies um, oh yeah. goodness yeah well but i you know i live on two acres and i have a couple kennels and yes you know, i don't i only have one right now so it's not it's not so bad but um you know it just gives me I, i'm better with with animals and people alex and so if i can do some good with animals that's where i'm going and i support several several charities um, that have um, rescued wild animals that have been in zoos that weren't taken care of or in homes and what have you. And I support the preservation of the Sulphur Springs Mustangs, which is what I have two of them. And, um, and then I do foster I, and three of the dogs I have, or two of the dogs that I currently have were rescues. And then I have a rescue that's living here. So that that's my why my why is get out garden, ride my horses. That's why I do what I do. I mean, I do what I do because I love the students and I love my work, but I, if you gave me a choice, if you said, if you didn't have to work anymore, Lisa, would you not work? I would be like, yeah, I'd be yeah. right. <laughs> I'd be, be right, right every day. <laughs> I'll be right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I I just I've always been a fan of of yours, and I will continue to be. And honestly, I'm I'm so delighted you come back to SDSU and you're teaching a new cohort of students. They need you there. They need your grit. They need someone who's going to guide them in the right way and not just yes them up and down and say, "Oh, beautiful." You know, they really need this sort of tough love learning that you offer so graciously. Uh, and I'm just I'm just so grateful that you're there and that you're continuing to educate them and bring on new talent into this into this industry. You are, in in my opinion, one of the uh, most ethical, uh, hardworking, caring individuals that I know. And um, just thank you for investing the way that you do in our industry. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for the compliments. And I feel the same way about you, love. I mean, Thank you, you know, we've known each other a long time and I there was nobody I would rather work with on a project than you. Um, and I am so blessed and thankful that we have had that opportunity in the past to produce some great shows and have some great experiences. And Alex, I love you too. I am uh, <laughs> just so... Um, thankful for both of you and you know I think about Frank a lot um I have a picture in my office at school and I I think about him a lot and I was I think I was blessed to have the opportunity to know him and I know you guys feel the same way so um absolutely absolutely forever in my heart and a wreath that he made for me um when he was nearing the end and he had a dear friend of ours make a wreath for me and it's hanging on my door and oh. every time I walk into my office, it's mm -hmm. there. And every December 28th, I break down a little. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, Lisa, thank you so much. Uh, we owe each other some time, some personal time. We need to make oh, that happen yeah. this year. And uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Anthony, let's go to lunch. Yeah. Like Kingsfish waiting. Yeah. I'm waiting. Go. I haven't had a... I, have, I haven't had a really good bowl of New England clam chowder since the last time we had lunch, so it's then time. let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, bye guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thank you for listening to Bolotified. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe. And remember to leave us your questions or comments at bolotta.com backslash podcast. Bolotified is a production of Bolotta Entertainment. Hey, that's a lot of Bolotta. Stay engaging.